Well, I want to again welcome you all here this morning. It's great to be with you. It's great to be one of you this morning. You, well, I was going to say you all, probably not all of you in here this morning, but those of you who lived in or in part of or through the 80s probably remember some of those memorable drug commercials that they would show on TV. They're not as prominent as they were then. They don't have as many, but, I mean, they have some now, but not as many, and they're not as prominent. Um, you might remember the particular one about uh, the frying egg, you know, and then you hear the narrator, this is, your, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And I always thought, what if I do have questions? There was no number on the screen to call, no P.O. box to send a letter to. Who do I ask? Uh, Or the other thought was, man, I could really go for a fried egg, huh? Anybody else? Yeah, yeah, Um, totally missed the point of that commercial. You might remember the other one, the, the kid is in his room with the big 80s headphones, although they've made a comeback, haven't they? He's in there listening. I think it's, it might be to a record player, and he's smoking weed. And his father, or, or I don't know if he's actually smoking, but his father busts in, and he's found his stash. And who taught you how to use these? And remember the response of the son? You did. I learned it from watching you. You are my example. The point being, parents... What you do will be mimicked by your children. Now, as those who have kids, as parents, this idea that you have someone watching you, who is learning how to live their life through watching you, it's a very scary thought, and it is a great responsibility. But it is how God intended it to be. Unfortunately, we as parents don't always set the perfect example, do we? And so we praise God this morning that he has given one to us who is always the right and perfect example. His son, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life while here on earth. And we have the record of his life recorded here in scripture for us to go to, to look at, and to mimic. To emulate. And when we look at Jesus' life to see his example, we find the secret of his spiritual success. And plain and simple, it's this. He, Jesus, walked by the Spirit. He walked by the Holy Spirit in faith. That was it. That was his secret. So often we like to say, well... Of course he was good. Of course he was perfect. Of course he did the right thing. He's Jesus. He's God. It was easy for him. But Philippians 2 gives us some insight into the life of Christ, into how Christ lived his life and what he did in coming in the flesh. And we find out in Philippians 2 that he did not regard his divinity as something to be pondered is what it says. Something to be used, something to be utilized, something to be taken advantage of. It's almost as if when Christ came to earth, took on flesh, he put aside his divine attributes 
so that he could experience life as a human, both being our example and being our redeemer, our substitute on the cross. One of the church fathers said he could not atone for that which was for that which he was not. He had to become fully man. He had to experience what we experience. He had to go through the same trials and tribulations. And yet being found unblemished, he was able to atone for us who are so blemished. And his secret was living by the Holy Spirit. And my friends, Jesus did not have anything to live by to to add to his success in life and in ministry that we do not have as believers. Peter tells us we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Jesus knew the secret of living a victorious and abundant life in God. And if we will follow his example of walking by the Spirit, then we too will find success, victory, and joy in pursuing God and being on mission with him. So if you'll stand with me this morning and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, I want us to read verses 1 through 11 together to see this wonderful example of our Savior. To see Jesus walking by the Spirit in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. And Matthew records, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You can be seated. For the next two sermons, we will look at Jesus' example of walking by the Spirit. And in looking at that example, we will see five aspects of the Holy Spirit's leading. Five aspects of the Holy Spirit's leading. Today we're going to look at three. Next week we'll look at two. Today's will be the negative and next week's will be the positive. Now when I say negative, I don't mean bad or the drawbacks to following the Holy Spirit. Although at first glance it might appear that way. 
But what I mean by negative is it's what walking by the Spirit doesn't guarantee to us. And the next week will be what walking by the Spirit Spirit does guarantee to us. And so I want to reiterate once more before we begin these five aspects that even Jesus himself walked by the Spirit in faith. I alluded earlier to Jesus taking on flesh and being able to sympathize with us, becoming like us and going through what we go through. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. If Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit in order to live a life pleasing to God the Father, and He was like us, He did not have more than we have. Jesus, the Son of God, the Divine One, the I Am, if He walked and lived by the Holy Spirit then who are we to think we can do this life any other way? That we can do it on our own without any help or aid from outside. Our master, Jesus himself, has set an example and it is our duty, our privilege, and a necessity that we follow his example in all ways and I think most importantly in this way. And so let us look at These aspects of walking by the Spirit. The first aspect we see here in the life of Christ is that the Holy Spirit's leading does not guarantee easy times in easy places. Once again, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. There it is. He was led by the Spirit. Where? Where does it say he was led? Into the wilderness. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, by God's Spirit, by God's divine sovereignty into the wilderness. Now, what do we know about the wilderness? Is it cushy? Is it five-star? Is it comfortable and easy? No. The wilderness is, you know, that's the language the Bible uses, but we could replace that word with desert. The wilderness is a barren, rocky place where Jesus lived. The wilderness is not just barren and rocky. We're not just talking about the the geography of the wilderness. But let's talk about the emotional environment of the wilderness. The wilderness is a lonely, solitary place. My friends, have you been in the wilderness? Have you been in the hard places, in the lonely places, in the uncomfortable places, in the difficult places, in the places where you feel destitute and destroyed, alone and without hope? Now, as Van said, our God does not leave us alone. 
He loves us as we sang. And, and you realize he, when we sang, oh, how he loves us, the focus is not on me. Oh, how he loves us is not a testament to how lovable I am, but how loving he is. It's the great scandal of the love of God that he would love me. Because folks, go back to Hosea, we're Gomer. You you get that, right? Gomer represents the people of God, the harlot who, although she has the affection and the embrace of her infinitely and unconditionally loving husband, she continues to run back to her lovers in the world. Sometimes God's leading doesn't look like we expect it to. And so we think, I can make this better on my own. And yet, it's not good. And so let us rest in the fact that, let's just get on board, get comfortable with, just accept that the Holy Spirit's leading does not guarantee easy times in easy places. It's where the Spirit led Jesus, the Son of God, to. And perhaps if you're in the wilderness, the desert right now, spiritually, emotionally, maybe it's exactly where God wants you. At the very least, trust him where you are. Ultimately, of course, the spirit would lead Jesus to Jerusalem to be arrested, falsely tried, mocked, whipped, and crucified on the cross. No, following God is not always easy. It's not always comfortable, but it's good. That's the first aspect. The second aspect is the Holy Spirit's leading does not guarantee the absence of temptation. We have this idea that when we come to Jesus, when we get saved, that it's just going to be easy. I'm not going to struggle anymore. I'm not going to want to sin. I'm only going to do what's good all the time. The devil's just going to leave me alone, not bother me or pester me anymore. And we have from the very life of the Son of God, the fact that that is not true. The Spirit led Jesus to be tempted. Does that bother you a little bit? Does that mess with your understanding of God? Listen to it again, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted By the devil. The Spirit led Jesus to be tempted. Now, as far as you're concerned, flee evil. Run from temptation. Guard yourself. Protect yourself. But realize, there will be testing. God will test you. He tests you so that he can grow you. And when I speak of temptation here, I don't mean simply stubbing your toe and being tempted to say something you shouldn't. Or maybe there's a relative that you're not crazy about and they make you upset and you're tempted to to say how you feel. Now those very well might be Satan's ploys. But too often when we think about temptation... We think of harmless, random events that might cause us to act impolitely. And we see these temptations as unrelated and insignificant moments of annoyance or frustration. But that is not reality, my friends. 
There is nothing random or harmless about the temptations in our life. Satan, in league with our flesh in this world, is seeking to spiritually kill you. That is to drag you to hell with him. He wants to steal any ounce of hope and joy in your life. And to destroy any positive impact that you could have on someone else. This isn't TV land and we don't live in a Ward and June Cleaver world. Where everything is hunky-dory most of the time. We live in a world so pervaded by evil that the Bible calls it this present darkness. We live in a world where the enemies we see are not near as dangerous as the enemies we don't see. What does Ephesians six twelve tell us? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now just a little bit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back a little bit and tell you how short a leash Satan truly has in your life. <clears throat> but for right, right now, I want you to feel that verse. I want it to send goosebumps up and down your arms. <clears throat> I want you to get a sense of what we're up against. Excuse me. And so, with that in mind, suit up, mount up, and man up. We're at war with the devil. And we must at all times keep a wartime mentality. Satan, our constant enemy, and he is a constant, all the time enemy. He's on the prowl and he won't let up. So let us not let up either. Amen? Amen. You know, it's fascinating that Christ's temptation came right after his baptism. In fact, Mark tells us that it was immediately after Jesus was baptized that the Spirit led him in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So from the very outset of Jesus' ministry, Satan began trying to drag him into sin, thereby incapacitating Jesus to accomplish his mission. Let me point out two things that I think stand out to me with that in mind. The first thing is that if you're ready for God to use you, then expect Satan to abuse you. If you're ready for God to use you, then expect Satan to abuse you. If you're seeking to be used in the kingdom of God, do not think for one second that the devil will not fire everything in his arsenal at you to take you down. This is why the Bible tells us that living the Christian life will not be easy. Satan is working 24-7 to destroy the ministry of those who are having any effect in the kingdom of God. In fact, if nothing is wrong in your life, if everything is carefree, you might want to question whether or not you're following God's will for your life. And I'm not saying that just because things are good, it means that you're not being godly. Sometimes God does give us rest. We see that in verse 11 where Jesus had a, a moment of rest. The angels came and ministered to him. But as a general rule, if you're working against the devil, you better believe that he's going to be working against you. My college roommate always used to say, if you're not running into the devil, 
you better be careful that you're not running with him. That is to say, if the devil is not working against you, it may be because your life is no threat to him. So that's the first thing. That if you're being godly, Satan will be attacking you. The second thing is, that I see out of this, is that it is often at the mountaintop experiences or moments of our Christian life that the devil is going to hit us the hardest. I mean, Jesus had this amazing experience. He went into his baptism. Now, I, I remember being baptized out in the country in a little Baptist church in Lamar, Missouri, or outside of Lamar. We went to a I was raised in a Cumberland Presbyterian church, but we didn't have a baptismal tank. And at the time, we had uh, a Baptist minister who who did immersion. So we went out to uh, a local Baptist church, and I was baptized there, immersed in the water, brought back up. And I remember it, and and it was so special. It it was so cool. Even as a little kid, I realized the, the weight of what was happening. Not that I was being saved, but the public profession of what Christ had done to me and for me. But it was nothing like Jesus' baptism. For one, he got baptized by John the Baptist. That's pretty cool in and of itself. But remember what happened as he came up out of the water. God the Father, God of all the universe, spoke out of heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit, as in the form of a dove, came down and rested upon Jesus. I don't know anybody who's ever had that happen at their baptism. That is cool. And now, I think Jesus was a little more emotionally stable than I am. Because that happens to me and I'm going, no way! Did you see that? Did you see that? Right? Amen? You with me? And I'm coming out of there feeling pretty good. What? God just affirmed me. He just said, I'm well pleased. Holy Spirit came down. Everybody saw it. It was, I mean, it was the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. We have presidential inaugurations. Well, that was Jesus' inauguration. He's feeling pretty good. And then you know what the Father says? Okay, it's time to go to the desert. It's time to be tempted by Satan. And Satan hits him hard. At the, at the, the pinnacle of his ministry up to that point. And my friends, it, it will be like that for us as well. It's when everything is going good that Satan hits the hardest. And that's because when things are going good, too often our guard is down, right? When we feel safe, we take off our armor and we put down our weapons, And so we mustn't, no matter how safe we feel, no matter how good things are going, we mustn't ever put down our guard. Now, when you get to heaven, you can let your guard down. But until then, we must be ready for battle. We must leave our armor on. We must have our weapon up, ready to wield at any moment. And, and no, we mustn't think as, of Satan as an, as an equal adversary to God because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. 
But even so, Satan is still very crafty and very dangerous. Though he is insanely evil, the devil is very smart when it comes to tempting you. He has studied you. He knows your weak spots. And he will hit you right where it hurts the most. So my friends, don't let the bliss of any moment distract you from the blast of the enemy. On the other hand, do not fear Satan. So I want, to, I want you to feel the gravity, but I also want you to feel the protection you have in Christ. Don't fear Satan, for he's on a le- leash and his leash is held by God the Father. And it's not just any leash, it's a very short leash. Once again, did, did Satan control when Jesus was tempted? Did it say, and Satan got Jesus to go to the desert so that he could surprise him? Did it say that? No, it says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This was God's design. This was his plan all along. Jesus' temptation was ordained and controlled by the Father. And this is not... Isolated to Jesus. Look at Job's life. Remember Job chapter 1? God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And then not only does he put Job up in front of Satan's view, puts it on his radar screen, which if I'm Job, I'm like, thanks a lot, God. But he also sets the limits of what Satan can do and not do to Job. In verse 12 of chapter 1, in fact, let me just go back and read it. Job 1.12 And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Do you notice there's no argument from Satan? No compromising. No terms. He goes out. And he can do no more than what God allows him to do. Same thing in verse in chapter 2 of Job. Satan comes back. Yeah, I took his possessions away. His children are dead and he's still faithful. That's only because I haven't done anything to him. And so once again, God gives him permission to inflict him but not to kill him. Once again, God sets the boundaries and the limits for Satan. Even Satan. And so, my friends, even Satan is in subjection to the sovereign will of God. Satan himself is just a pawn in the plan of God. Now, I know this will blow your mind for me to say this, but Satan only does the will of God. Woo! Did you hear that? Now, please hear me when I say that. I'm not saying that sin is good, sin is the will of God. I'm saying Satan is never outside of the control of God himself. And Satan, although in the moment it looks crazy, it looks insane, it looks out of control, it looks like he's made a mess and a muck of things, at the end we see that God's plan was always being done. We can't let the perception of the moment overshadow the reality of eternity in what God is up to and what he is doing Look at Peter's life. Luke twenty two thirty one 31-32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. 
Satan has asked permission. He can't do it unless I give him permission. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Or what about Paul? 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, God's plan to sanctify Paul, to keep him from, uh, from exalting in himself, exalting in self-righteousness, depending on God, as we talked about in Sunday school class this morning. Paul says, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. There was given to me. By who? By God. God gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan for his sanctifying work in Paul's life. In our current day, or or in our account today, like in the lives of Job, Peter, and Paul, Satan was used to do the work of God in the life of Christ. Christ had to be tested for in testing. He was shown to be the one who could sympathize with us and therefore die for us in our weakness. Because he was tempted, he was able to be our sacrificial lamb. Satan is merely God's instrument in the world. Unwillingly, of course, but an instrument nonetheless. And the ultimate example, of course, is the cross. <clears throat> Remember what it tells us, the crowd, crucify, crucify him. And, and we find out in Scripture that they were being pressed by Satan. They were being manipulated, led astray. Satan was behind it all. And yet Isaiah 53 tells us very clearly that it was the plan of God to crush his son for our transgressions, for our iniquities. The Holy Spirit's leading does not guarantee we won't be tempted and tested. But it does guarantee that he will be with us through it all. He will give us the strength to overcome. He will lead us out of it. He will give us a way out. He will give us the words to speak. And then third and lastly, very quickly, the Holy Spirit's leading may require us to forego earthly accommodations. It doesn't guarantee comfort. Jesus was called himself to leave behind comfort. He was led into the wilderness or what we would call the desert. He had to leave his home, leave the shelter of a roof and the comfortable conveniences of being in a house outside of the the weather and the warmth and the sand and the wind in the company of others. In his ministry, Jesus called himself homeless. Remember what he said in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now, did he have to be homeless or does every Christian have to be homeless? Well, of course not. But the Spirit led Jesus to be homeless, at least for a time. Jesus was called to fast. He was told to go without food for a good length of time, 40 days and 40 nights, correct? And many sermons have been preached on fasting using this passage here in Matthew chapter 4. Many good sermons have been preached from it. I'm so sorry. Because fasting is an important part of the Christian life, and I think one that gets overlooked far too often. I have some verses here and some good quotes, but we're gonna we're gonna shoot past that today for time's sake. And because I don't have much voice left. And of course we know fasting doesn't have to be food. It's anything that's important in your life, anything that could distract you 
or, or anything that you will long for that you can turn that longing and direct it to God. So whether it's food or TV or books or video games or even maybe a relationship for a time. To increase our hunger for God. And thirdly, and this is kind of a, a, an overarching statement here. Jesus was called to sacrifice in the midst of his service. And not only might we be, not, might we be called to forego earthly accommodations in fasting, but also in our service to God and to others. Serving God, it may be required of us to live without certain conveniences. I, I love, I, I hate to be hot. I hate to be sweaty. Now, if I'm outside working or playing a, a, a sport, I, I'm okay with it then. But just being uncomfortably hot, I, I do not like that. I like air conditioning. I like to get cooled off, to feel refreshed. I like a hot shower in the morning. I like warm food to eat and cold drinks to drink. There are some places in the world where that's not an option. And God may call me, he may call you to those places. Maybe you don't like snakes. God may call you to somewhere that has lots of snakes. I, whatever it is, we just have to be okay with letting go of those things, because those things don't matter, not really, not eternally. You may be called to live without proper health care or health insurance. The blood of Christ is our ultimate life insurance, correct? Now, if you can get insurance, that's good. But we mustn't live in fear, but in subjection to the will of the Father, regardless of where He calls us. And in the end, my friends, I, whether it's easy easy times and easy places that we give up, whether it's the accommodations of comfort and convenience. And even in temptation, we find that the greatest good, the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure and satisfaction is found in following God by the Holy Spirit. I think I've shared the story with some, but let me share it with you again. On December 4th, 1857, David Livingston, who was the great pioneer missionary to Africa, he uh, went through the inlands, he made maps for other missionaries, he shared Christ with many. He was speaking uh, or addressing some students at Cambridge University, and this is what he said. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege, anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then. With a foregoing, listen to this, with a foregoing of the common, the common conveniences and charities of this life. There it is. He says, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And then he says this, I never made a sacrifice. 
I never made a sacrifice. Being sick, being alone, being tempted, being without conveniences and comfort. (coughs) Yet I never, ever, not once made a sacrifice. Because the the mindset that David Livingston had was a heavenly, an eternal mindset that said, I consider everything I've lost as rubbish compared to the surpassing goodness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. All the gain that I've gotten in knowing and serving Christ is far better than anything else that I've lost in serving Him. My friends, walking by the Spirit may cost you. It may cost you dearly. It may cost you everything. But in the end, it is very good. It honors our Father who, oh, how He loves us. It reaches our neighbor who needs to know that love. And for us, It is the greatest reward in all the world. And it lasts forever and ever and ever. And today I invite you to come and know the Holy Spirit by grace through faith in Jesus. And then to walk through him. I leave you with this quote by Jim Elliott, the great missionary and martyr. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose.